You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. We'll read together the first 16 verses of Psalm 119, and we do so in connection with this afternoon's message connected to Lord's Day, the first part of Lord's Day 34. If you look in your Bibles, you will see that Psalm 119 is structured on the Hebrew alphabet, and we're going to read Aleph and Base, the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which make up the first 16 verses. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. They have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart. As I learn your righteous laws, I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. I would like to preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as you find it, and as the church confesses and summarizes this on Lord's Day 34. I'm going to read the last question and answer of Lord's Day 33, and then we'll stop at the end of 93. 91, what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, in accordance with the law of God, and to his glory, and not those based on our own opinions, or on the precepts of men. And then Lord say 34, what is the law of God, or the law of the Lord, or the ten words of the covenant? And you heard that together this morning. 93, how are these commandments divided into two parts? The first teaches us how to live in relation to God, and the second, what duties we owe our neighbor. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, Last week, some rather notable people died. No doubt you heard of one of them, Luciano Pavarotti, a well-known tenor, world famous for his musical abilities, died in Italy. Someone else died as well last week, and you probably, or maybe you did hear about him, Dr. D. James Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy is the, or was the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, a very large, humongous Presbyterian church in Florida. One of the founders of the Presbyterian Church of America, 
And a well-known Presbyterian statesman, theologian, preacher, an evangelist responsible for the book's evangelism explosion. Why do I mention Dr. Kennedy? Well, Dr. Kennedy once wrote, and that's in connection with our topic of this morning or this afternoon, I am amazed that people who suppose a Christian is to have nothing to do with the law of God. He looked upon modern-day America and he saw many who called themselves Christians, but who really wanted nothing to do with our subject or our text of this afternoon. He's not alone. In England, there is a well-known theologian of Anglican pedigree, a world-wide statesman in the evangelical community who has written some time ago, one of the great weaknesses of contemporary evangelical Christianity is our comparative neglect of Christian ethics in both our teaching and our practice. And then Dr. Stott goes on to say, in consequence, we have become known rather as people who preach the gospel than those who live it and adorn it. We are not always as conspicuous in the community as we should be for our respect for the sanctity and quality of human life, our commitment to social justice, our personal honesty and integrity in business, our simplicity of lifestyle and the happy contentment in contrast to the greed of the consumer society or for the stability of our homes in which unfaithfulness and divorce are practically unknown and children grow up in the secure love of their parents. What Dr. Stott complains of is the same thing that the late Dr. Kennedy complained of, and that is a lack of attention to what is called Christian ethics. To Christian norms, you might say, another word for ethics, standards of behavior, to a certain moral code, to the rules of right and wrong. These, they said, and they still continue to say, are in decline among believers. And why is that? Well, Dr. Stott says one of the main reasons for this is that our churches do not, on the whole, teach ethics. We're so busy preaching the gospel that we seldom, he says, teach the law. But simply then, he traces the ethical problems in our Christian community back to a lack of attention being paid to the law of God or to the ten words of the covenant. The problem is that far too many believers do not know anymore what to make of the law, how to handle it, how to understand it, much less how to apply it. They seem to have grabbed hold of the words of the Apostle John, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and use that as a reason to say goodbye to the law. The law, in other words, is Old Testament. Grace and truth is New Testament. And the result, beloved, we have a rudderless Christianity today when it comes to proper behavior and right acting. And so you might say, beloved, the point that these men are making and others are making as well is that today we need the law. We need to know it. We need to respect it. We need to teach it. 
and we need to practice it. But then at the same time, I should add, we need to do all of these things out of a right and proper perspective. As in here, the Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of the law can once again help us. It can help us as believers to become more complete and balanced and more active when it comes to doing the will of God in all the areas of our life. And so, beloved, I preach to you this afternoon on the following theme. The law of God, says the Catechism, directs our thankfulness. First of all, we're going to look at God's purpose in the giving of us of the law, man's problem in the keeping of the law, and finally Christ's power in the fulfilling of this law. Well, beloved, the law as such is not very popular in Christian circles today, and the question then arises, why is that? I suppose that you can identify a number of particular reasons. The first is that The law is so often connected with the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is not very popular today either. And often you may realize as well, there is this antagonism developed between the law in the Old Testament and the New Testament gospel, and the two are pitted against one another. And you know, when law goes against gospel, when Old Testament goes against New Testament in that way, The law in the Old Testament always loses. Because um, somehow people think the New Testament is always brighter and better. So, beloved, there is this built-in bias, you can say, against the Old Testament. And thus against the law. Another reason why the law is not very popular today surely has to do with some of the laws that you find in the Old Testament scriptures. There are a lot of laws dealing with ceremonies and with civil matters. The ceremonial laws deal with all kinds of sacrifices, priests and priestly duty, temples and tabernacles, and what's all involved. And at the same time, the civil laws found in the Old Testament deal with all kinds of crimes and punishments and so forth. Not exactly popular stuff. And also at the same time, to some extent, also dated stuff, of course. So people say, who needs it? That too no longer is applicable today. And the third reason, beloved, why the law is so often discarded today has to be or will be related to the fact that people so often wrongly have used the law of God. For example, in the Old Testament, there were those Jews who figured that By obeying the law, you could get your ticket to salvation and to eternal life. And in the New Testament, there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees developed a whole complex program of works righteousness. And of course, we have much the same still today. People abusing the law in one way or another. And so, beloved, the law is not very popular. There is a problem with the law. A problem when it comes to its content, a problem when it comes to its interpretation, and also with its application. A problem that contributes towards a negative image. 
Again, beloved, as we consider all of that, we also need to consider something else, and that is, is this negativity toward the law, is that reflected rightly and truly in the Old Testament scriptures themselves? We've read together a moment ago from Psalm 119. We only read 16 verses. And maybe you know as well as I do that if you keep on reading Psalm 119, you cannot but help come to the conclusion that the psalmist sees the law of God as a most glorious and blessed thing. He's always calling the law of God a delight. He says its commands and the doing of its commands set his heart free. It makes his voice soar. It gives his life purpose and direction. Talks about walking about in freedom as you do the law of God. So, beloved, when you read Psalm 119, you, you come away with this very positive impression of the law of God. And you ask yourself, what is this? Is there a disconnect between modern perceptions, negative perceptions of the law, and what the Old Testament tries to teach us and impress upon us? Well, to some extent, that may very well be true. Because, beloved, if you look at the Old Testament scriptures, what do they teach you? They teach you that the law of God is fundamentally and and intrinsically an extension of God himself. The law is an expression of his will. The law is an extension of his heart. When God gives us his law, he's giving us his letters filled with direction and guidance and instruction and wisdom. The law is meant, as far as God is concerned, to make us wise. So you wonder, how can we be so negative about it? You can't really separate the law of God from the will of God or the person of God. And I think, beloved, that we need to be mindful, therefore, of the psalmist. And how the psalmist looks at it all. The law comes from God. The second thing that we need to remember is that the law of God is the thing that teaches us some hard things about ourselves and about our original state. And maybe that accounts for part of our negativity toward it. No doubt if ours were a perfect world and we were a perfect people, we wouldn't need the law. We wouldn't need it written down. We wouldn't need it written in our hearts. But the fact of the matter is, by nature and by history, we are children of Adam. We are children of the fall, children of perdition. And by nature, we do not like it when God comes to us in his law and says, this is how I want you to live. You see, beloved, the law has a therapeutic function. It shines its spotlight on our lives and and highlights the warts and the blemishes and the faults and the errors. 
And the Apostle Paul stresses this particular diagnostic function of the law in Romans 3.20 when he says, through the law we become conscious of sin. And he stresses it again in Romans 7 when he says, I wouldn't not have known what it is to covet if the law had not told me you shall not covet. And needless to say, that's a painful business. Painful, but at the same time necessary. If there's something really wrong with your body, would you not want to know about it? Would you not want to know what the ailment is so that you can take the necessary steps or the doctors can take the necessary steps to correct it? Well, then I ask you, does the same not apply to your soul, your spirit, if something is seriously amiss? Beloved, the third thing that we need to realize about the law is not only that it comes from God and is an extension of his heart and his will, but and also the fact that it it examines and x-rays our lives, but also that it leads us to Christ. On one level, you can say the law reminds us that we are imperfect people. We are people who need help. We are people who are in desperate straits. But if the law exposes our faults, it also leads us by the hand. It shows us that there is a solution to our problem. It shows us that what we cannot do in and of ourselves, Christ Jesus can do for us. You know, the Apostle Paul speaks about that function, that particular aspect of the law in Galatians 3, 24, when he says, So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Literally, it says, the law functions as our tutor, as our custodian or caretaker, our pedagogos. It makes us aware of our sins. It keeps us in check. It teaches us manners. It disciplines us in order to show us that we need Christ for our salvation. You might say it softens us up for the Savior. Yes, and that in turn brings us to the fourth thing, which is that the law is there to set the standard as we seek to live a life in harmony and out of the salvation of our Savior. And you know, that's the way the Heidelberg Catechism handles it well. For notice, it doesn't put the law in the first part about sin and misery. Neither does it put the law, the Ten Commandments, in the second part, which speak about deliverance or salvation. Now, the first part is dominated by bad news. The second part is dominated by the deliverance worked by God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit. But you know what the catechism does? It takes the law of God and it places us in the third part. That part which deals with our thankfulness, our gratitude to God. 
It ties it to our good works. And notice, beloved, how closely the law is tied to our good works in Lord's Day 32, question and answer 86. The question is asked, why must we yet do good works? Why must we show thankfulness? And in Lord's Day 32, the next question and answer, we are introduced to the opposite of good works. And in the next Lord's Day, Lord's Day 33, question and answer 90, we come across good works as a result of living a truly penitent and converted life, as we saw last time. And as well, in 91, we saw that good works have a certain standard by which we are to conduct ourselves, namely the law of God. Yes, and then in this Lord's Day that we have before us this afternoon, Lord's Day 34, we meet that standard in a nutshell, and it's the law of the Ten Commandments. You see, beloved, how the law functions here, not as a means to salvation, and neither does it mean to teach us all about all kinds of Old Testament ceremonies and civil statutes. Well, the law here functions as a standard for our good works, defining the character and the nature of our thankfulness. It shows us how best to live a grateful life. A life that's in harmony and in step with the will of God himself. And so, beloved, we ask, is the law bad? Is it something to rant and to rave or rail against? Is it an enemy to resist? Is it something to criticize and to castigate? Hardly. The law, beloved, if understood rightly, is God's way of leading us in the way of salvation. And it's God helping us to live a truly Truly thankful life. But beloved, after seeing the true intent of the law, we also need to understand that handling this law properly, sometimes another thing. So often, beloved, when we take and when we deal with the law of God, we go to extremes. For example, you may know there is the well-known extreme, and it's manifested in the Christian church, called legalism. And what is legalism? Well, legalism is fundamentally the idea that you can achieve your salvation by keeping the law of God. In other words, what you need to win the favor of God is to keep every one of his laws. You set them up in a row. You study them. You memorize them, you catalog them, and then you apply yourself to them with all your might. But legalism doesn't stop there. It also goes out of its way to add to the laws of God. And how does it do so? By taking every law and interpreting it, and then by elevating that particular interpretation to the status of divine law as well. Legalists have a way of turning the law into an industry. 
And if you want an illustration of that, look at the scribes and the Pharisees of the New Testament. The law was their all-consuming passion. They spent all their time examining it, memorizing it, debating it, dissecting it, and augmenting the law of God. And the result was that their book of laws became sicker and sicker and sicker. As well as more and more ridiculous. I think some of you have heard of what happened, for example, with the fourth commandment dealing with the Sabbath. Do you know how many different kinds of work there are? The Pharisees said there are almost 40. They had figured out that there were 40 different kinds of work almost and that every one of those 40 kinds of work can be categorized into lesser categories and all kinds of distinctions can be applied. So that this is what you can do and that is not what you can do. The Jews knew very carefully after a while what was allowed and what was not allowed on the Sabbath because everything had been canonized. You can walk so far only. You can carry so much only. You can do so much work only in your kitchen. Everything is prescribed. Everything is laid down. And so what is this? This is legalism. This is a new form of idolatry. Yes, beloved, it's possible to turn the law of God into an idol. You know, if you worship the law, if you divorce the letter from the Spirit, if you think that little old you, you yourself with all of your own power can keep the law, and ultimately you turn it into an idol, if not a demon, It will puff you up, and in the end it will blow you up. You see, beloved, the law of God is good, but not if you separate it from the heart of God. The law of God is good, but not if you separate it from His grace. The law is good, but not if you put it before loving God. We need to be mindful of the extreme of legalism. But at the same time, beloved, we also need to be mindful of the extreme of what is called libertinism. You know what that is? That's probably the most popular philosophy and approach today to the law, and that is really saying, who needs the law of God? I am a law unto myself. I can determine myself what is good for me, what is not good for me. What I should do, how I should act. I'm in charge of my own life. And I don't need anyone to tell me how to live or how to conduct myself. Therefore, as for those Ten Commandments... As for this particular expression of the will of God, who needs it? No one's going to tell me what to do or how to live. 
or how to act. But you know, beloved, that too is something that the Scriptures condemn. Our Lord Jesus says very pointedly in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, if you think that I'm a law eradicator, if you think that I'm the one who supports the abolition of the law of God in the lives of God's people, you're utterly wrong. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to fill it up. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. John says in chapter 5 of his first letter, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin or ignore the law of God. And indeed, beloved, I would say to you, if anyone thinks that You can be a child of God without listening to or obeying the commands of God. You need to read what the Apostle John writes. You know, John loves to write about love. But then you should also read what John says about this God of love. And and you'll see that loving God, as far as John is concerned, is always an expression and an extension of keeping his commandments. 1 John 2 verse 3, we know that we have come to know him. If we obey his commands. You read a lot of literature today, and they would say, we have come to know Him if and when we have this warm and fuzzy feeling in our hearts. John says, no. You know Him if you truly obey Him. John also writes in the third chapter, those who obey His commands live in Him and He in them. And he writes in chapter 5, this is love for God, to obey His commands. And then he adds, and His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Sometimes people say the law of God, those Ten Commandments, Who needs them? They're a bore and they're a burden. John says his commands are not burdensome. They help you to overcome the world. And surely, beloved, all of that is rather clear. Surely, All of this contradicts those who claim that Christians don't need the commands of God anymore. Sometimes we hear that in various forms. 
But beloved, if you, if you think that you can rebel against, say, your parents, and still at the same time consider yourself to be a faithful, true child of God, you need to think again. If you think that you can lie your way through life, or steal, or slander, or sleep around, and still claim to be a faithful child of God, you need to think again. Those who make such claims are disobedient, rebellious children of God. Children who are headed for destruction unless they repent and commit themselves to a life of new obedience. And so, beloved, we have those extremes of legalism and libertinism or sometimes even called antinomianism. Of course, those extremes are not the only problems when we come to the law. For many of us, the problem isn't in the extremes. It may be just in plain forgetfulness or inability or even indifference. But the point is, when it comes to the law, it's a challenge for all of us. None of us is able to keep this law perfectly, to understand it fully, or to apply it perfectly consistently. There is a sense in which we are all debtors to the law. You strive to keep it, but you still fall short. And so where does that leave us? A massive case of frustration and a huge headache? Are we all in a state of disobedience and under sentence of condemnation? By nature, we would be and we should be. And the only reason that we are not is because we have Christ. You know, beloved, when it all is taken together and all looked at in totality, it's only Christ who saves us from the just sentence of the law. It's only Christ who restores our relationship to God the Father. It's only Christ who's able to deal with and dispense with and remove all of our violations to the law of God. And how do we know that? Well, again, because the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law. Now, that's a controversial statement, isn't it? Christ is the end of the law. What does it mean? Some say it means that Christ terminates the law. Others say, no, it means that Christ abolishes the law. But lately, beloved, all kinds of studies have been done. And scholars are now convinced that when Paul says that Christ is the end of the law, he means that Christ is the goal and the completion of the law. Christ completes the law is its fulfillment. 
He takes every one of its precepts upon himself and he fulfills them all perfectly. And that is not all. For Christ didn't just come to prove that he could fulfill the law and that he's a faithful son of the Heavenly Father. He also came to bring God's other sons and daughters in conformity to the will of God. And indeed, beloved, read on in Romans 10, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Yes, and it's out of that perspective that we approach the law of God. We are not people who can obey it in our own strength and determination. We are not people who believe in the righteousness of their own works. We are not people who believe that salvation depends on our law keeping. We are a people who realize and who believe that Christ alone supplies our righteousness before God. And we do his law out of thankfulness and gratitude to God and to his Christ for their great salvation. And as for our shortcomings, as for our failures, as for our sins and our violations of the law, we live in the confidence every day that Christ covers it. With his perfect obedience. He has removed the curse of the law. From us. And so beloved as we go through this life. We don't fear the law of God anymore. Neither do we dismiss it. We look at it as fulfilled in Christ. We look at ourselves as being made righteous in Christ. And out of that great privilege and that great blessing, we live new lives in the strength that Christ provides through the power of His Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.